Welcome into a new Buff Stampede Radio. Adam Tiger, the publisher of BuffStampede.com. Similar format for this week's show. I'm going to lead off here with a few questions from fans, and then we're going to get into Ryan Miller's segment on the podcast, and then William Gardner. And I chatted for a very long time, just trying to make sense of what happened at Empower Field at Mile High on Saturday in Denver. I thought it was a great point made by Brian Howell when he and I were doing our post-game analysis. And he said, look, 1-1 was everyone's expectation outside the CU program after two weeks. And that, that includes most of the diehard fans, right? The expectation was that Colorado would beat UNC handily. That happened. The expectation was, for most people, maybe the diehards thought, See you had a chance, and, and God bless you for that optimism. And you proved to be more right than those of us that were making predictions for this game. But I, again, I don't think many people expect this team to be 2-0 at this point, and it stings. You lead a football game for the majority of the way, and you lose. And so we're not trying to be Pollyanna on this podcast. If you listen to this podcast, we're going to talk about the real issues on this team. And even Ryan and Miller and I talked about moral victories and the fact that if you're a player, that just doesn't mean a whole lot. And so I, I get all that. But Minnesota has always been the most critical non-conference game when you look at it from a realistic standpoint of a week from now, if CU loses to the Gophers, we're going to have to get pretty negative on this podcast because that game – means so much for CU in terms of what they're trying to build. It starts with bowl eligibility and building up for the future. And You beat Minnesota and you get into a Pac-12 schedule, and we've all seen what the Pac-12 has done this year, and there's a lot of winnable games out there. You sit there in June and you go game by game, win-loss, win-loss, and I've always hated that because you just don't know how these teams are going to kind of really pan out. And You look across the Pac-12, and you kind of have to throw out Arizona State from this conversation because they beat up on Southern Utah at home. They beat up on UNLV at home. UNLV is not a good football team. They lost to Eastern Washington in their first game. So you kind of remove them from this conversation. Only Oregon and UCLA have played better football than CU through two weeks. Stanford had a nice win over against USC. They did not look good. They looked putrid offensively, at least, against Kansas State. Cal's 0-2, Washington's 0-2, Arizona's 0-2. Utah got beat by BYU, which barely beat Arizona in their first game. If Utah's playing Colorado tomorrow, they're going to be favored. I'm not saying that, but you do power rankings. If you put Colorado third or fourth on there, you know I don't think you're getting a whole lot of pushback there. So try not to just be Pollyanna on this podcast, but there's a lot to be excited about, despite the fact that CU was the losing team on Saturday. Aaron Lott, 303, asked, I have to ask Adam, thoughts on Chev's play-calling mess? Could you see KD taking his play-calling duties away from him? We now have the history to say Chev is in over his head, and with the way the defense played yesterday, I'd hate to see a coach-slash-play-calling cost us more games. And Aaron Lott 303 followed up. Adam, you go one step further on this. 
Chris Fowler even called this out in his nightcap recap, saying our play calling lacked creativity and will be questioned after our defense played out of its mind all day. How long can Carl Durrell allow this to continue without it negatively affecting the season? So I get after yesterday, as a CU fan, you want it to be very definitive, black and white, and no gray areas in terms of analysis here, and just me to go emotional. The one thing I will say with Coral Durrell is that he's already shown in a brief time as CU's head coach that he's willing to make tough decisions. You could have definitely made a case that Tyson Summers had a lot working against him as a defensive coordinator, especially after Nate Lamon went down. And Carl Drell was not willing to make those excuses, made a tough decision, fired him. Drew Wilson was well-liked by most of the players, makes a tough decision there. But, you know, obviously Shannon Turley was an upgrade there. And through two games, I, I think it's pretty clear that Chris Wilson was an upgrade there as well. So he's willing to make those tough calls. I will say... If you're going to talk about the negative with Darren Chevarini as a play caller, you also have to bring out the positives. He has been the play caller in 2018, six games in 2020, and through two games this year. And I really like the game plan that he puts together and what CU does. Go back and rewatch the first half of CU against Texas A&M. There's a lot to like about what they did offensively against one of the elite defenses in the country. But like I said, 2018, six games in 2020, two games in 2021. To go along with what Aaron Lott 303 is asking here is we, we're starting to get more of a sample size here. The Darren Chevrolet is the offensive coordinator as a play caller. And the adjustments just aren't there. And... I'm not smart enough to know what the answer there is. I can sit here and go, they're lacking creativity in the second half, and I feel strongly about that. Now, obviously, A&M's making adjustments defensively to what Brendan Lewis was doing in the first half and what made CU's plan look so good coming out the gate, right? That's what separates the great offensive coordinators and the good offense coordinators is that they can make those in-game adjustments. Yeah, at the bare minimum, you need that at halftime. You'd like it to be blow by blow, right? The defense does something, you come right back and you adjust every, every drive. We've had enough sample size here with Chef to, to know that's an issue. What's Carl Drell going to do here? I don't know. But I guarantee you, if Colorado struggles again offensively against Minnesota, Curl Drell is not going to just sit there and go, we're okay with that. He, that's not in his makeup as a head coach. So I'm anxious to see how that pans out as much as you are, Aaron Lott, 303, and the rest of the Buff fans listening to the podcast. Does he make a change now? Does he become more involved in the play calling in the offensive game plan more so than he has been? Is Danny Langsdorf part of the picture there? I don't know, but I do know that Carl Durrell has shown that he is the type of coach that isn't going to sit idle when he's not happy with something. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm taking a front front row seat, just like all of you to see how this 
plays out. Clearly, something needs to happen in terms of innovation during the game. Again, I love what, what's happening here in terms of what their plan is going into games, but uh, that's only part of the job as an offense coordinator. You're, you're playing chess up there, and you can have a great plan for how your pieces are going to move, but you have to react to what that defensive coordinator is doing with his chess pieces as well. And so color me intrigued as to how this kind of plays out. Trevmon28 asked, is it possible to pick up another walk-on or chance for quarterback this late in the season? And he also asked, is Matt Lynch going to move to quarterback, provide depth, and another run first type, run first type at quarterback? On the first question, they did already bring in a walk-on at quarterback that was their scout team offensive player of the week for the UNC game. Yes, you're not bringing in a transfer quarterback at this point. Drew Carter is your second quarterback, and he's definitely not ready as a true freshman right now. But that's where you're going if something happened to Brennan Lewis. If nothing happens to Brennan Lewis, you're going to keep rolling him out there and hope that he works his way through some of these growing pains as a first-year starter at quarterback. Matt Lynch, though, would be an emergency option there at quarterback. But, uh, yeah, you're, that's not a solution for CU to have a winning season at this point. And so Matt Lynch is still out there at tight end. That's his position right now. And so um, best-case scenario, obviously, would be Matt Lynch stays at tight end. Ellie Buff asked, if Rick George hired you as a consultant for the football team, what advice would you give him? I also asked this question to William Gardner and Ryan Miller in the following segments. Rick George's job as the athletic director is to hire the right head football coach. Let him delegate from there. And it's kind of weird timing on this question, too. I, I get if Colorado was blown out by 40 points yesterday against AM that you know maybe this question would come in. But I think Rick George did his part in hiring Carl Durrell. I, I think you've got to be encouraged with what he's been as a head coach here through eight games now. It's trending in a positive direction. So Rick George has a pretty good football consultant uh, in Lance Carl. And uh, again, I'm willing to admit when there's people that know more than me about football. I've got a couple guys on the podcast coming later where I can say that. And uh, I can certainly say that definitively about Lance Carl. So, you know, I have opinions, but I mean, we're, we're talking about this after CU almost upset the number five team in the country. We'll see what goes, what happens going forward here this season. But the timing on this question maybe isn't, uh, Proper. You asked this question here back in 2012. I would probably have a, a laundry list to, to share with you, but uh, right now let's see what happens against Minnesota. And, and let's get into these interviews that I have with Ryan Miller and William Gardner. Joined on the line with Ryan Miller. Ryan, uh, Colorado came oh so close to beating number five, Texas A&M in Denver yesterday. What were your general takeaways from the game? Gosh, I, I really think it was a tale of two halves. Um, I was so proud of our defense. Um, and the, the, way, the way that our Buffs D was against this, this number five, you know, uh, A&M game that had 
they had a very good running attack coming in here. And for us to make them punt, I want to say it was, was seven times, something like that, um, seven or eight times, um, that's a monster number. I know we didn't come up with the win. There's there's so much good to be taken away from here, but I hate to say it as Buffs fans, but I think we're just sick of this kind of stuff where we're right there in it and we need one more cog to fall into place and then it, it doesn't. Um, you know, I'm sure a lot of people want to put blame here, there, or the other. It It is a team effort when it comes down to it, but I'm very, very happy with 90% of what happened. Well, we'll call it, we'll call it 75% of what happened. Cause I think, you know, I think that fourth quarter, we were just so, so exhausted. We had spent so much time on the, on the field that it was bound to break free. And then unfortunately it did. Um, but empowered and thrilled about how we played as a defense. Uh, there was a big rotation going on in the offensive line. I'd like to see us solidify that. Brendan Lewis is getting a little bit more confident. Need more confidence coming out of him, but it'll come as time goes on. Wasn't 100% thrilled with the play calling, but that's a, we can talk about that later if we want to. Us in the media like to bring up moral victories for programs that are kind of on the come up. And obviously that's where CU's at. We've been talking moral victories for far too long. I admit that with CU, but you know, no one gave them a chance and, and they go toe to toe with the number five ranked team in the country. Is there such a thing as a moral victory from a player's perspective when it comes to that confidence going forward? From a player's perspective, playing, absolutely not. You you want the W at the end of the game. You're gonna go in and do your film study and get goods and bads and uglies, whether you won or lost. So that's ultimately what matters is what's in that win column. Yes, you can build off cohesion. You can build off what you did, plays that were done well, things that were done poorly, learn from it. But as far as like a moral victory, I think it's a cop out. It's you want the W. If it's an ugly W, great. Um, you know, if it's, if it's a pretty loss, then, then so be it. You know, it's, I, I don't want to put stock in moral victories. It's, when it comes down to the end of the day, coaches' polls aren't built off of moral victories. CU's defense gave up just 94 yards through three quarters. You kind of talked about it, the defense being out there so much. Was it kind of unavoidable for them to, to kind of finally break down a little bit and give up that touchdown late in the fourth quarter? That's one of the advantages I think that Colorado has is, is we can play at altitude and we can hold these guys, you know, really anybody to, to a long game. Unfortunately for us, I think it was that we were just on the field a hair too long. Um, these guys played their absolute butts off. There was so much good that happened in this game on the defense. Nate Lamon was everywhere. Um, I was happy to see Barnes in there as well, um, getting some familiarity on the, on the ground. And then Blackman, too, I was thrilled to see him running around making plays. Huge, you know, huge recovery. Um, but you've, you've got to get your defense time to, to breathe and get water and then, you know, really make, make adjustments that can come out and help you win a football game. But you can't do that unless your offense isn't pounding the rock and staying on the field and putting together these long, you know, 9, 10, 12 play drives. Our Jack 3 had a question that I kind of wanted to throw your way. He asked, with Florida State having a letdown performance against Jacksonville State, what's important for the Buffs to do this week to avoid 
the same emotional hangover. And Ryan, why I wanted to ask you that this question is just from a player's perspective, you've been in there. I'm sure you've, you know, battled against a top team. You come up short. What's important for the buffs this week to avoid that? Short memory. Got to be short memory. You, you played a, a pretty good game, you know, this, this past weekend, get in, get your film work, get your recovery, and then you are on to the next one. It's, that's how it has to be. You can't sit back and, and wallow and wait because nobody's slowing down and nobody's stopping for you to catch your breath. You've just got to move on and keep, keep putting the work in to get this stuff done for next weekend. Is that on the coaches, the leadership, or is that going to have to be like a personal inventory thing that every guy has to do in order to kind of avoid that emotional hangover? Every guy has to do it. Leadership and coaching absolutely help push it along. But where you find successful teams is with guys that can self-start, where you have leaders in the locker room, and then those leaders are talked to by the coaching staff up front, excuse me, upstairs, and it can all trickle down. You'd love to see it happen with the leaders on the team, and then it goes up to the offices and then spreads from there. And then the whole the whole unit gets it. You know, not just not just players and, and coaches, but training staffs and even equipment staffs and, and training staffs and everybody, it affects everybody. And when you have a good successful team, everybody's got that short memory and it's passed around like, Hey, we got to get this stuff going. And leadership spreads more than I think people give credit, uh, credit that it does that, excuse me, leadership spreads faster than people give the credit for. And whether they want to see it or not, that's the beautiful thing about leadership is it's going to get noticed. Do you think what CU does on the field against Minnesota, which is not Jacksonville State, it's not like they have an FCS team coming in. They've got another Power 5 opponent coming in. Do you think what happens on the fields next Saturday will kind of show where the leadership is on this team? Just from a, you're so close to, to breaking through. And in 2016, CU kind of had that with Michigan. And they broke through after that because it was kind of like this, It was, they were so close to, to you know, bearing the fruits of their hard labor and it didn't come through in that Michigan game, but then they really, that leadership should kind of shine through going forward. Do, do you think the Minnesota game can kind of show where the leadership is on this team? I hope so. It, I don't think we're going to get one defining moment. You'd love to have it where all of a sudden everything comes together and, and it's the 99 yard run or the, you know, the pick six or whatever it is that, it slowly builds and grows piece by piece, step by step. And hopefully it happens in practice this week. And we have no idea what happened. And that leadership was just grasped hold of on the offensive side and then thrust into us against a, a very talented Minnesota Gophers team. Mile High Crew asked, obviously Texas A&M has a very good defense, but taking into account how disappointing the passing game against UNC was, how worried should we be about that aspect of the offense? And what are the reasons why it hasn't been productive? Uh, do you have any thoughts uh, there? I don't think we need to worry. We have, we've still got a fairly young coaching squad and a fairly young unit we've got out on the field right now. Um, we're still rotating offensive line guys. Brendan Lewis is still getting his feet solidified in there. I did think he made some good check down decisions this, this past game, but his confidence level needs to go up a little bit more and, and maybe take a shot you know, where, where you need to be the spark. Um, I need to see somebody on the offense really light the fire, you know, under their rump to really, really ignite everybody else. Um, and I don't care who it comes from. I know who I want it to come from being an offensive lineman, but 
I think we talked about this last time is leadership can come from anybody on that. And you've got to set that spark to get, to get things rolling on that, on that offense side of the ball defense. You've got the leadership. We got it. We've seen it. It was apparent. It was beautiful. Uh, it was a fun game to watch from a defense defensive standpoint. Um, but offensively, you know, that, that passing game, when you play against, you know, A&M or, or really anybody that, that knows how to be in correct spots, and can snuff out these quick little, you know, under five yard throws or minimal gains. First, you got to protect, and then you got to play, play. Excuse me, play pass and catch. We we got to we got to figure that out a little bit. Malai Crew also asked. It felt good to hear Carl Jarrell talk about being aggressive and going for it on fourth down, and said he wanted that to be part of the team's mentality going forward. How did you guys feel after hearing that, considering all of us thought he was more of a conservative coach after last season? Kind of building on that, Ryan, with, my, with that question towards you, what, what does an aggressive mindset do as a player out on the field when you hear your head coach talk about how that's going to be kind of your, your, your mentality going forward? It's a vote of confidence. You know, third and shorts, fourth and goal, whatever it is. You know that the coach is call. If the coach calls the plays to to put you in a position to win, then that means he's got faith in you. If you're going to kick it or or take a knee or or whatever, you kind of your air is let out of your tires a bit. So for him to make those calls and um and for for CU to to need to win, then we need to succeed in those territories. But the confidence level that the coaching staff has to make the call, say, hey, here's what we're going to do let's go for it. And then you have to execute it as a player. It's awesome. You definitely, I think anybody as a football fan that sees the coach run out and the QBs yelling, go for it, go for it. Or linemen are yelling, you know, we can get this, yada, yada, yada. It fires you up as a, as a, as a um, spectator. So to see it as a player and know it as a player and finally have them throw the chips in with you, then absolutely knock it out. Let's go. That's, that's what gets teams rolling. Ellie Buff asked, if Rick George hired you as a consultant for the football team, what advice would you give him? Have you met Rick George before? I have. Phenomenal human being. Um, I love Rick. He has been nothing but awesome to me. I think he's doing a really good job with our programs right now, not just football, but across the front. Um, I really wouldn't have, you know, a lot of advice for that man as, as I look up to him. And he has a tremendous amount of my respect. Uh, if I had a little, some words of wisdom, um, you know, it would be right now. It would be stay the course. We we keep coming back to, or I keep coming back to leadership and cohesion. And the way you get leadership is by building camaraderie with everybody around you, and then that camaraderie turns into cohesion, and you get this great little pot that mixes with everybody together. Now you know what the guy next to you is going to do, and you know who's going to hold the charge and lead the charge, and it can come from anywhere. Rick George, Darrell, you know, Landman, whoever it's going to be, it's stay the course. I think we got good things coming. Clean up a little bit of these these self-inflicted wounds and penalties, and uh, and we'll move forward. And I think we got a great chance to do great things with this team. You were part of the generation that the Dow Ward Center was kind of home base, and you had the hill that you'd go up after practice. 
Uh, and obviously things have gotten a little fancier since, since you graduated. Have you been in the hallway that, that houses all the trophies and the brick game bricks and, and the videos that, that kind of leads from the indoor practice facility in, into the locker room? I absolutely have. And you, you've seen the list of all Americans on there and Ryan Miller, your name is on there. And as media, we wait a very long time sometimes because we, we got to have to get there early just in case they end practice early. And so we're kind of hanging out in there. And the list of all Americans, your name has been the last CU player on there for a very long time. Nate Landman gets second team all American honors by the Football Writers Association of America in 2020. I think he was a second team All-American selection by Phil Steele as well. So you finally have some company up there uh, as more of a recent buff to go up there. I would think that, you know, as a, a guy that appreciates hard-nosed football, it's got to feel good to have his name right after yours, right? Absolutely. Welcome to the club. Uh, <laughs> that's It's a neat need accolade, but to be joined by by younger ones and kids that follow in your footsteps is it, it's the pride and the tradition of the Colorado Buffaloes, right? We will not be entrusted to the timid or to the weak, and and I want more names on that list. And and Nate is an excellent addition to that list. I think anybody watching that this season has no no doubt in their mind that he should absolutely be a you know back to back All American. He's First team, no question in my book already. He's he's displaying the speed and passion and power uh, that we need to see very much, you know, butt kiss esque. So it's awesome, and congrats to you, bud. That's a that's an awesome achievement, and I wish nothing but the best for you, Ryan. I know people have enjoyed having you come on the podcast. We got got a lot of positive feedback last week. Each of these segments, I'm going to throw a, a different kind of question to make you delve back into your memory a little bit. And my question this week is I want to ask you for your favorite moments as a buff, just from your playing career at CU. I got to pick one. Just one. Oh, just one. I can't pick one. I won't pick one. And that's the beautiful <laughs> part about being on the radio. Is I can say what I want. <laughs> um, Fair enough. I'm certainly not going to fight you over that. So, <laughs> uh, First one would definitely be getting my first start against Kansas State uh, in the Little Apple and looking over, seeing Josh Freeman as quarterback and thinking he should play defensive end, um, not quarterback. And then my first time running out behind Ralphie at Mile High was one of the coolest, or I guess sports authority, whatever the heck they call that thing now, um, Vestro and Power. I don't remember anymore, but that's that's definitely up there. Uh, but I think my favorite one was there was a wish list article put out after we had played Nebraska. And one of the things on the wish list was game film of Keenan Stevens and I versus Nadam Kinsu uh, playing against Nebraska. And I just remember Keenan and I had such a great game against one of the best defensive linemen to have ever played the game and one of the strongest human beings I have ever gone up against. Um, but we put him in his place that game, and it's fun to look back and think about that moment. Uh, tremendous amount of pride in that moment and just relationships built with with guys like that with Keenan and, and playing next to guys that that helped you succeed, you know, Nate Solers and Bakhtiaris and you know, Daniel Sanders, Devin Head, 
you know, all these kids out there that just, I guess I say kids, these are grown men now, <laughs> but those are the moments that, that resonate with you is, was playing next to those guys in situations with against top tier talent. Awesome, Ryan. Thanks uh, for joining the podcast again. I appreciate you. You bet, bud. Thank you. Joined on the line by William Gardner. William, before we hit record here, you said uh, you're glad we're doing it here on Sunday. You've been able to catch your breath a little bit. Uh, obviously a tough loss to stomach. Give me your general takeaways from Saturday's game. Well, it's funny. I was thinking about the preseason podcast we did, and one of your questions to me was, what can we learn from these two games? And I said, I don't know, maybe not that much. Might have to wait for the third game. And as usual, I was wrong. I think we learned a lot in these first two games. I think we learned that we could potentially have one of the top defenses in the country. Uh, I think we learned about some guys who were question marks before the season. I'll tell you, Naeem Rodman can play. It's not a 100% to me that Mustafa comes back in and beats him out based on what I've seen in two weeks, which may sound crazy to to people. But, uh, you know, my point being that we've had some questions answered about some guys. Um, We've had a question answered about Chris Wilson. Chris Wilson, man, two games in. Hard to say that's the be-all and end-all, but, boy, it sure is a nice early return. Uh, I would say there's a possibility after after what I've seen that this team could be special. I saw them improve significantly on, on Saturday. Um, perhaps it's not as visible on offense, but certainly we, we, were, we were better on defense and better on special teams, I think, than we had been the week before. Uh, I think Carl Durrell can coach. I think he gets kids ready. I think uh, offense obviously needs work. Um, we're physical. Man, that that defense flies around, and they hit people, and they believe, and they play with passion. That's a fun defense to watch for CU. Uh, that's, that's as fun a defense as I've seen, frankly, even more so than 2016. That that really kind of takes me back to some of those 90s defenses with with the way guys were flying around and the way they were hidden. These guys believe in each other. They believe in their coaches. Um, we got some guys on defense. Wow. Uh, Rodman, Sammy, Janaz, Jordan were all super. And, and that, was, that was a good, good SEC offensive line. That's not a bunch of chumps. Uh, and there was one play at least where Terrence Lang made an All-American, a returning All-American lineman look stupid. So I think we learned a lot so far. I think we have the opportunity, and we'll find out even more this week. I think we have the opportunity to really have something special here is, is kind of my gut reaction. I'm not sure I felt that way <laughs> late last night, Yeah, to be honest with you. That's that's what I figured most of you fans would feel like is the emotion would be too raw yesterday, especially when you leave the football game. You're shutting out or you've kept a team that's ranked fifth in the country out of the end zone until what was it? Four minutes left in the game. Less than that. Yeah. So for more than almost, you know, basically 57 minutes of the game. Don't you think a, a defensive coordinator's number one challenge is kind of similar to that of a strength coach in the sense that 
you can have all this knowledge, but if you don't get guys to genuinely buy in, it really shows itself on the field. You can X and O all day long. But like you said, these guys are on defense are playing with their hair on fire out there. And I think that comes from the top. It's, it's a situation of this defense, kind of like 2016. And, you know, I got called out for saying that this defense isn't going to be as good as 2016. And I still think the jury's out there because we're two games in that. It is too early. That, that defense did it through, through the course of 12 games. And I know they struggled down the stretch in the Pac-12 championship game and in the Alamo Bowl. but they really took ownership as a defense. And it feels like, again, through two games, it feels like that's what they're doing. Well, I think your comparison to a strength coach is right on the money because I've been both. I've been a deep, well, I've been a defensive coordinator, but I've been a defensive line coach and I've been a strength and conditioning coach. And you can show kids how to lift all you want, but if they don't believe it, and if they don't believe that it's for their best interest and if they're not competing with each other and if they don't go into that weight room every day uh looking to to be better than they were the day before yeah sure they can go through the motions of the lifting you know same same thing can happen on a defense guys can be in the right positions and still get whipped um you know that i i was struck looking going back and watching the game over again at the beginning the the TV announcers talking about how loaded Texas A&M is at every position. And I think by the end of the game, people sort of revise history and they're like, oh, well, that offense isn't very good. That offense is really good. It's really good. That tight end will be drafted in the NFL. Two or three of those linemen will be drafted in the NFL. Some of those receivers will be drafted in the NFL. And for those saying, well, it's a backup quarterback, you know, that backup quarterback was an Under Armour All-American and highly rated and had 15 power five offers and has been there three years. He's not some chump walk on. And you know what? If they didn't have their backup quarterback ready, that's on them. That's not on us. That guy's rated higher than anybody on our any quarterback on our team. So, um, yeah, the when they believe in their coordinator and what he's trying to teach them and they all do their assignment and they'd all don't don't try to do too much they trust the guys around them are going to do their job whenever you what one of the things that has always struck me about elite organizations whether it's the military or football is nobody wants to be the guy who lets the team down nobody wants to be the guy who says i'm the reason that they got that big player i'm the reason that they lost the game and i think you got the, the other thing that strikes me that that is a good comparison to 2016 is that that defense is led by players. When you got Nate Lamman and Carson Wells and Terrence Lang and, and uh, all those guys on that defense who really want to win. And then you bring in guys like Robert Barnes who comes from a top program and, and uh, you got Blackman and Gonzalez. Those guys are leaders on the field. Guy Thomas has stepped up as a, tremendous player and he he comes from that kind of a background as well so i think that 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 leadership on the field and it's infectious when you have a guy like uh nate lamon or carson well everybody else wants to be like that you know so uh that that i think is a big deal that they believe in in their coaches and what they, they're doing and i think it's a huge difference that chris wilson has them playing with that kind of fire and passion that i think was missing last year 
we're going to have to pile on the offense because they got shut out for three plus quarters. I almost kind of blame the offense. Obviously they put the defense out there far too long in the second half, but they let Calzada get enough reps in there to where he finally, you take enough reps. He's finally going to make a couple nice passes. Both of those passes to Spiller, yeah. the third, the third down completion uh, that was just right on the money. I'm trying to yeah. remember who was there in coverage, but I think it was maybe it was Gonzo. It was right in there in right. a tight window. And then the touchdown pass to Spiller in the end zone. I mean, that thing was a thing of beauty too, but you know, he was spraying the, the ball all over the field, but right. you give a guy enough chances, eventually he's going to hit a couple strikes in there. Right. Well, and, and you know, again, I'm struck by going back. I was looking at, uh, I was looking at kid up that quarterback Calzada, Calzada, I think Calzada. Um, yeah, Calzada. And you know, the word on him free game was his accuracy, right? Is, is what I was reading. Um, and his arm strength and he got in there and he was flustered. Now people have to understand too, that there's coaches on the other side. Jimbo Fisher is recognized as one of the premier quarterback developers in the country. This guy knows how to work those, that position. And, you know, they were, they were again, watching it again on TV they were the announcers were showing him over there working with this guy all the way through the game, sometimes yelling at him, sometimes patting him on the head and really coaching him, coaching him, coaching him. And eventually, you know, you give a guy like that enough, enough, enough attempts, he's going to get it right. And with the kind of weapons he's got, again, that tight end is something we don't, we don't have anybody like that at tight end yet, not yet. Um, And some of those receivers are really some of the best in the country. So to have them come and take so many shots at us throughout that game and to shut them down so completely right there until the end is really phenomenal. And I know you had a question is, oh, I guess different question about our offense and their defense, but I think. Um, no, let me ask you that question. Which is more true? Texas A&M's defense is elite or Colorado's offense is inept? I think Texas A&M's defense is absolutely elite. No question about it. And, and I'm looking, I'll give you one example. DeMarvin Leal is, is their defensive tackle, kind of lines up at all positions. You know, he made uh, Colby Purcell and Kari Kutch look silly. But the guy is projected as a potential first-round draft pick at defensive line. And they got those kinds of guys across that front seven, and they're loaded. There's no question about it that – the only defense looking down the road that I think is going to be close to that one is Oregon um, to have that kind of a, of players up front that they saw is Colorado's offense inept. I don't know. Again, I think it's too early to say, I think it depends on how you define the word inept. They, they're able to put up 35 against the lesser opponent. I think we'll see games where they score points and I think there's still time and room for them to improve. I think it'll help when Frank Phillip comes back and fills one of those tackle spots. Um, but to face that kind of a defensive line, you know, these are not the last guys that that defense is going to make look bad. I'll just put it that way. It's funny. I was putting together our predictions article in the morning this past week before taking our youngest, our daughter off to school and she saw all the scores and she saw us all predict, see you to lose. <laughs> The judgment on her face was pretty strong. It, it was a kind of a cute moment. And she she had a line of, 
well, Caesar's going to work harder to prove you guys wrong then, because that's what I would do. It was very, yeah. Her, her little 10 year old brain can't understand that this is not what we're cheering for. Right. What we want to happen. This is what we think is going to happen. And so after the game, she, she was kind of asking what happened. And I said, see you lost. And she goes, well, they, they didn't work hard enough then. So she's not into moral victories. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I thought it was funny. But, but she, it's, it's beautiful, you know, out of the mouths of babes, but, but she's not wrong. And I think this team has that. I, I, I really think that team has exactly what she's saying, that chip on their shoulder that says, you know, we're going to prove something. You think everybody universally thinks we're going to stink. I mean, I don't, you know, I think all the preseason prognostications were what, four wins, five wins, maybe max. Um, and I think this team has more talent than that. And I think they believe in their coaches and they have that chip on their shoulder. And this is a game where you can win and, and you can compete on pure emotion. You can, you really can. You can't, I don't know that you can do it every week because it's hard to get up like that. I, I think it happened in 1990 because of a special circumstance with Sal. Um, I think to some extent we saw a lot of that late in, in 2016 because those players took over that team. But this is a game where passion makes a big difference. Um, and so I think that that will make a big impact on this team. And I think that that outcome yesterday, you know, I don't, I don't really care for moral victories either, but I do know that games like this have a positive impact on a team because now, you know, now, you know, I mean, you, before that game, all of those guys had to have some little question in their mind, man, we're going to get worked in this game. Well, now we know we can stand toe to toe with damn near anybody in this country. And, and we weren't tricking them. You know, we weren't trying to run all kinds of trick stuff and fancy stuff. We lined up and punched them in the mouth and they punched us back. And I, I posted on the board last night, it reminded me of one of those uh, Frazier Ali fights from back in the day where they just stand in the middle of the ring and wail on each other. And, and they didn't knock us out. So I think that goes a long way towards helping young players have confidence in what they're doing. And when you come through a game like that, where whether it's a close win or a close loss, it builds a team together because you've just survived something together. And, you know, on the losing side of it, you're mad because damn it, I'm, we're going to, we're going to show people. So I, I think, I think a game like yes, like yesterday can have a very positive impact on a team. It's unfortunate that we have to keep comparing things to 2016 because since before that, you got to go all the way back. I mean, really, I wouldn't even say oh seven. They went to a bowl game. They played Alabama. They finished yeah, six, and six seven. And six still, and then even late during Barnett, you kind of ha- before that, you almost have to go back to oh one until right. things were really, really exciting about CU football. Doesn't yesterday? At least you hope. Is that it feels kind of like Michigan in twenty sixteen? Right. I, I think it feels better, and and I You're chatted. Really? Okay. I, I chatted with a couple of people about that. I, I was at that Michigan game and um, when Cepho got hurt and when Derek McCart got hurt, we didn't have answers for those two guys so much at, in the moment, specifically McCartney. We just didn't really have anybody at that other outside linebacker spot. This defense has more and it depends on more plays. Um, and I think that there's more talent around the, I think there's more talent on offense, quite frankly. And if we get some things figured out that, 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 that they, yeah, but you, you don't have, you don't have Cephalufile and Philip Lindsay's leadership, not on offense, uh, but you got that on defense. 
Yeah, but w- what is the most important position in college football? I guess I would I, I would contest that. Like, well, yeah, you quarterback. Had, we, you, you, know, you, we had don't four, have you had four NFL guys in that secondary too. Well, I just I just feel more like the the feeling after that game of this yeah. team is so close to breaking through on a national stage, and yet they didn't pull out the W, and then they proved to follow through. And I think that's in front of this team still. Right. I agree with you there. I'm just saying from the perspective of right after, you know, you know, I, the, the Michigan game kind of ended up being a, a wider spread. I think they got in the forties and this game was just so much, so much closer, I guess it, it, it makes me feel even better I, a little bit, I suppose. And now it depends on how we follow that up against Minnesota. Yeah. I think I already know the answer to this question, but is a and going to prove to be the toughest defense the Buffs are going to face in 2021? Yeah, I don't think any – well, I, Oregon might come close. Um, you know, Javon Thibodeau is, is right up there and one of the best front seven guys in the country, but uh, I don't think anybody else in our conference comes close. And Minnesota certainly doesn't. We talked about this a little bit just in terms of the mindset Chris Wilson's created. Is there anything else you feel like through two games he's done to kind of create a defense that other teams fear here going forward? Well, the element of fear comes, these guys are physical. My goodness, our, our, our defense will hit you. They'll hit you in the mouth. And the other nice thing about it is it's rarely one guy. It's it's two and three and four and even more guys coming after you. You are going to get beat up and punched up uh, playing our defense. And I think the more people see that, uh, you know, when we, when we play lesser offenses, they're going to just really dominate them. And the other thing is you can't just run through this secondary either. That that was a heck of a performance by our defensive backs because, quite frankly, we still don't have a um, – how do I want to put it? A, a consistent pass rush. We have a we have a pass rush that, that was did enough yesterday to keep that kid on his toes early. Um, if we develop a, a Jimmy Gilbert type of, you know, somebody that's really – Legit, although it's starting to develop that we have it, we're getting it from different places because uh, uh, Naeem Rodman got a sack, I think, yesterday. And then um, Terrence Lang had that one beautiful play where the kid got the ball off, but but uh, Terrence planted him. So we got some pressure on the guy. Uh, and I think if we get that, if we get that, if we add that pass rush element to it, this could be a super special defense. But really, it's the attention to their, to their, responsibilities everybody's doing their assignment and they're doing it well and what i see from the various positions is there's is the technique is very solid and we have different guys that can do different things so we put robert barnes in there at inside linebacker and he does a blitz and he just blows up the center i mean just kills the center and gets a hand on the ball that's a huge play we didn't have a guy like that inside last time with that kind of athleticism so uh I think there are a lot of things about this defense, but the, really, the, the like you said, they play with their hair on fire, and, and that's really the number one thing for a defense. That's the fewest or second fewest points by a top five team against CU in history. CU held Notre Dame to nine points in the Orange Bowl on January 1st, 1991, and 17 total points, the fewest in a CU game since the Buffs 10-5 win over Stanford in 2016. It's funny watching that game. It kind of reminded me of that 10-5 win over Stanford. I guess we keep going back to 2016. But 
it, it was not an aesthetically pleasing football game, which is why it reminded me of that 10-5 win over Stanford in 2016. But uh, what, what are just kind of your thoughts on the historical impact of, of what CU did yesterday holding A&M to 10 points? Well, it's always, I just want to comment on your comment about it, not aesthetically pleasing. I don't know, man. You know, I guess I'm an old school guy and I love linebackers and defensive linemen and line play. That game was beautiful to me. I mean, those two teams just slugged it out. It it, it was beautiful to me. I mean, I think we, we didn't look very good on offense and neither did they, but what I saw from those two defenses just was really exciting to me and fun to watch. Um. I guess that's just kind of how we're we're programmed now in the Twitter generation, right? It's got to be fast and it's got to be high scoring. Uh, If I'm in in line for a fast food restaurant and it takes me more than two minutes, I'm pissed off, right? That's kind of how we're wired now. Yeah, people want to see those PlayStation, you know, football scores and and stuff like that and throw the ball downfield and all that kind of stuff. So I, 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 so I, I totally get it. I just wanted to point out that some of us, some of us, Love that kind of a game. That sort of a, I, I, I guess I call it a, a, a Nate Landman kind of a game. I love that stuff. But in ter- terms of the historical aspects of it, I think you know th- I was at that Notre Dame game, believe it or not, back in '91 as well. And and this Texas A&M team has a much more polished, much more explosive offense than that Notre Dame team did. I think both of those teams were noted by their defense in that game. So I think it's an even bigger accomplishment here. And certainly Stanford, you know, is not a throw it down a field and, and get big plays kind of an offense, even in 2016. So I, I think this is an even bigger achievement than those two games. Nate Lamon becomes CU's all-time leader in third down stops. He already held the school record for most fourth down stops. And now he's in the top 10 with all-time tackles. He moves up to number nine on that list. Where is he? You talked about loving the way the game played out because it was a Nate Lamon-style football game. Where is he in your heart in terms of all-time buffs? Man, he's he's quickly becoming one of my all-time favorites, really. I mean, I would say my favorite it, – it, you know, it's hard to pick a favorite linebacker at CU because we've had some truly great ones. And, when, and mm-hmm. for me, when I talk linebacker, I generally am – in my brain, is th- I'm thinking inside linebacker. So the first guys that come to my mind are Barry Remington, who to my my way of thinking, because I saw him, played against him in high school, he's still the best linebacker I ever saw. Um, and then Ted Johnson and uh, Matt Russell and uh, – Nate Lamon belongs with those three. No question in my mind belongs right with those three. Uh, if he was playing 10 years ago, he'd be, he'd be a shoe in for Butkus, but he's as fun a player to watch. And he's just, he's just always there. And he's, he's so passionate right in the middle of everything that uh, I, I think he's one of my favorite of all times. And just the fact that he came back this year and the story of coming back from an Achilles that quickly and being so good. He's better. I think he looks better this year than I've ever seen him look so far in two games. So the the legend is still growing and God knows where it goes. You know, if he, if he leads us to some kind of a special season, who knows where he winds up on the CU Mount Rushmore (laughs) levels. We got a question from mile high crew along those lines. He asked, after this performance on national TV, 
Do you think Nate Lamon's stock has gone up or remained the same in terms of his draft stock and the Butkus Award? I know it's only two games, but being seen on national TV going up against a top five team, this felt like something I wanted to ask. Yeah, I, I don't think it makes a difference in the draft standing so much because they're going to do their own evaluations regardless of what he does. And they're going to want to see what he can do in coverage and things like that. But certainly in terms of Butkus and All-American, this this is a huge boost to him uh, to have that national TV. And, you know, again, watching it again on TV and then those announcers were just raving and just salivating over Nate Lamb. And, um, and you, you just can't beat that kind of uh, notice, that kind of thing. You know, when he got a chance to be on national TV, he showed up and he took advantage of it. So I think in terms of the Butkus Award and All-American and All-Conference, I, I think yesterday was huge for him. I know his reaction made a lot of people feel like he should have made that interception late in the game. That ball was firing through there. He yeah. would have almost needed to pop that thing up in the air. And even still, I just think there was too much momentum on that. I don't think that was as close to a pick as maybe some people thought it was. Yeah, if you go back and look at it, it, it he's really outstretched and it's really right on the fingertips. I mean, and even it's, he, that thing is firing through there, too. Yeah, yeah. And it's so fast in that situation. It, it, it comes at you so quickly. You're not expecting it. You're not a receiver. But, you know, the thing that stands out about it to me is he's so good at what he does. And the, the announcers on the TV noted this at one point. He's always watching the quarterback's eyes. And so he 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 knows where that ball is going. And it's very impressive, frankly. His, his improvement his, in pass coverage is, I mean, incredible from him. Yeah. They, they, the reason he didn't play his true freshman year is because he couldn't cover anybody. Yeah. And I think he's a guy that's going to make it at the next level simply because he, he, he will do the work to improve on what it is. That's a shortcoming. If he has any shortcomings, you know, so um, it's impressive to me how much, how much dedication he puts into this to, I mean, he, he's one of those guys, he really needs the game. I just going to put it like that. And it's what he does. So in mile high cruise question here, you, you answered it. I'm going to answer it as well. In terms of draft stock coming off an Achilles. I mean, he wasn't going to get drafted unless he came out there this season and showed that he was a hundred percent back to the Nate Lemon as before. And like you alluded to earlier, he might even be better than that, which is, it doesn't make sense. But for Nate Lamb, and it kind of does. In terms of the Butkus Award, I just don't know enough about all the other linebackers in the right, country. Right, and that's, the ball. You're, you, you start ball. to pare that down, and you get later in the season, that's when you, you start looking at stuff like that. But there was one of the TV announcers at one point um, where Nate pressured the quarterback and then came around the other end of the field and chased down and tackled the guy that got the pass. And he said, you know, you, draw, you, you look in the dictionary for middle linebacker, and you're going to see that guy. Did you watch Carl Durrell's post-game press conference? I did. I did. What were your thoughts on it? Uh, <laughs> I love at the end, he got pretty fired up and got heated. You know, the, I was trying to turn the volume up and hear the questions because clearly one of the questions set him off and I couldn't hear what. Well, exactly. he was asked he, well, he was asked about going forward on fourth. And that, right. that, that definitely fired him up. Yeah, he said, I'm going to do it again. I'll do it again. Maybe not the same play, and I didn't have any problem. I didn't have any problem with going for it on fourth. I had a problem with the play call, and he alluded to that that maybe that wasn't the way to go. But he wasn't going to also 
you know, judge um, Cheverini for that call either. Cause like he said, I've been there, you know, and you, you do what you think is working and they did pick up two or three yards on the first one. That's uh, there that was a, that was a bad spot on the third down quarterback. Keep, I had my binoculars out in, yeah, I'm watching from an angle, so I'm not saying this with 100% right. certainty, but it sure looked like he was closer to the first down on the initial quarterback sneak. Right. And then the second one, I said to Monica Costello, who is to my right, she works for the AP. I was like, they have 900 pounds in the A gaps. Like, yeah. they're not, they're, they're, they don't have a possibility right. of getting this first down. And then I rewatched the TV broadcast. And the, the, uh, was it Brock Heward? I think he said there was 1200 pounds in there. There was another guy in there. So that might be a a situation where you, you hate to eat up outs there, but it's still the first half at that point. That that was second quarter. Um, Here's, here's the, here's how I would have handled it. If I was calling the plays, because as soon as they came to the line of scrimmage, I said, we can't go up the middle, but look, man, you know, my mom could get around outside because literally there was 10 guys packed inside. They were all there. They knew what we were going to do. And what I would have done was have them break the huddle with two plays and a, and a code for which one we're going to run. And you come up and you see where the guys are. And if they're, if they're spread, you run the sneak. And if they're packed in, you're going to run the other thing to the other side. And I think they would have walked into the end zone, quite frankly. Uh, that to me, you know, coming out of the huddle with two plays like that and, and, and giving the quarterback the opportunity, maybe they don't think he's ready because he's too young. I don't know, but that's not a hard read. I don't know. That's how I'd have done it. But um, trying to sneak with what I saw between the tackles, I, I, I think I posted somewhere last night. I don't think an NFL offensive line could have moved them out of there. Now, if that's the third quarter and you kind of have a sense for how the scheme is going a little bit more at that point. I think you kicked the field goal there, and I think Carl Drell would too. But in that case, I don't have a problem with them going for fourth down because you're assuming you're going to need, you know, more than 10 points to win the football game at that point, right? And the other thing is that at that point, we had had three drives in the first half that penetrated deep into their territory. Mm -hmm. So at that point, we didn't have any reason to believe we couldn't do it again. We had the one that got down there and the the field goal missed. Um, And then we had that, that, uh, series and so we had gotten down to their red zone three different times and at that point in the game there wasn't any reason to believe we wouldn't be back there transfers robert barnes and blank toll made their first appearance for the buffs and william the the freshman receivers chase penry and ty robinson are getting quite a bit of action obviously Fonte chenault not being out there on saturday we'll talk about that a little bit later but ty robinson played 18 snaps I, i was not expecting Ty Robinson to really yeah. be on the field. Chase Penry, after seeing him a little bit last week, I was like, okay, I see why he's out there. I haven't keyed in on him a ton. It's not like he's been out there a ton, but he gets off the line pretty quick. I think he's got a really bright future for Seattle. Yeah, and for, for the second straight year, for the second straight week, he got us a big first down. Yeah. You know, this time by pass interference. But you know, you don't have to get interfered with if you're no good, if you follow what I'm saying. You know, if you're slow and can't get open, there's no reason to interfere. And so that's two weeks in a row that he's gotten us a first down as a wide receiver out there. So I, I think his future is bright. People are asking about Vontae Chenault. We don't know. I did not see him on the sideline. I don't want to speculate. We just don't know at this point. Um, and now Monday is the team's day off. So in the past, we would get a chance to talk with Jarrell on 
Monday, we would ask him about that. We're, we don't get that opportunity until the press conference on Tuesday. Obviously, we're going to ask him about that. We're going to ask about Chris Miller as well. He didn't play as well. He was at least there. Um, he had his uniform on, but wasn't suited up. You knew he wasn't going to play pregame. Yeah. And I know Chris Miller was interviewed by Henry Chisholm of DNVR on Wednesday. And Henry asked him, are you healthy? And he said, yeah, I'm 100% healthy. So I don't know what the heck happened between Wednesday yeah. and the game time. But goodness gracious, like the reason we all ranked him so low on our top bus countdown is for this reason. And it's like, this game. I just I just want him to prove us wrong. You, it's, it's so frustrating. I know it is for him too. Right. It's just – he didn't get hurt in the opener. It's like, man, like what's going on, right? It's like you have to chuckle and and not in a demeaning or mean way, but it's like, man, come on, like what is going on here? Yeah, you just kind of throw your hands up, you know, and it's like, well, okay, that's what I expected. I don't know what to tell you. At some, at, you know, at some point, you, you a guy's not reliable to be there, and it just he's, how a, it good, is. he's a good kid and he's yeah, a good sure. teammate and he works hard and. The defense was obviously just fine without him out there. Right. Goodness. Yeah. Before we move on, though, you know, we, you mentioned Robert Barnes, and I just want to go back to that. He he had a, a, a big play where they blitzed him up the middle, and, you know, he got picked up by the center. He ran through that center like like the guy. He, he knocked him backwards onto his butt and, and got up and got a hand on the ball. That's a huge impactful play at that point in the game to prevent them from getting a first down. Uh, so I just wanted to, uh, uh, again, note that Robert Barnes had a big impact on the game in, in that respect, at least. Terrence Lang was banged up. He came back in, got banged up again. We'll ask again. We'll ask about that on Tuesday. Yeah. Jarek Broussard had his legs undercut and uh, he was definitely a little bit banged up there. I'm going to have to give a, I'm going to have to give a game ball to somebody on offense. It's got to be Jarek Broussard. He was the only one that found the end zone and uh, yeah. he was definitely pretty solid in that first half. We're, we'll, we were told that he's fine. We'll ask again about it this week. Dimitri Stanley, same thing, got knocked out. He came back in. It looks like a, an ankle issue, but uh, we'll keep an eye on that. we got to kind of move along here, William. Uh, Josh Watts quietly had his best game as a buff, as a punter, had three punts of 50 or more yards, averaged 54.7 yards on three punts inside the CU 30. Uh, you're never that excited when the punter comes out there because you know the offense – stalled but he had a solid performance I think do you do you want to add anything there on Josh yeah I I think both both punters were very instrumental in the way this game played itself out because both of them had big days and both of them flipped the field quite regularly and so it's easier for a defense to keep a team out of the end zone when they start deep in their own territory so I thought both punters had a huge impact um, on the outcome of this game and the low scoring nature of it Scobuffs80 asked, do you think they are ready to settle on five for the offensive line? He might have missed. Casey Roddick did play in the second half of that game, so he rotated in there. And Frank Phillips still working his way back. I think Phillip returning is not necessarily a knock on the settling on five, but the five that started against uh, A&M is definitely not necessarily a settled for five going forward. Well, I mean, it is is for now, like you said, until – Philip comes back. I'm I'm little. It's in, I'd I'd like to you know I'm not the one in practice and I don't sit and study the film the way uh, Coach Rod does. I would have assumed that Roddick played well enough to supplant Ray this week, but he did not. But it seems very clear to me that they have their five 
in terms of a starting five for the moment. And that, that is uh, Ray, Max Ray, uh, Kutch, Purcell, Cannon Ray, and um, Riley, Wiley. But, you know, when Frank Phillip comes back, clear, I, I, at this point, I still think Frank Phillip is our best lineman. Um, ultimately, I still feel like our best lineup out there is going to be Roddick and Phillip on, at, at those other two spots. But right now, it seems clear to, that the starting five – uh, is what we saw on Saturday. Well, Roddick, it still might be working him back. And right. maybe he's not ready to play a full game. I know that he was cleared before fall camp, but he didn't have the benefit of the whole offseason to, to work his way into the shape that you want to be in to play a, a whole game. So that, that leads me to say, no, they're, they're not ready to settle there because they're going to see how you know, Ray and, and Roddick is right. assuming that Roddick continues to get that conditioning and, and is able to play more and more snaps going forward. I think, I think that will be an ongoing battle. I think, look, you know, the offensive line had a rough day. There's no question about it, but they are not going to see a tougher front seven. They're not going to see a tougher front seven. Several of those guys will get drafted in the NFL that they faced. And you know what? We're not look, I don't know. You know, we're, like Colby Purcell is an excellent college center, but he's 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 borderline in terms of NFL prospect. Kari Kutch the same, whereas those guys they were facing are clearly NFL prospects, right? So the fact that they struggled on Saturday, I'm not concerned. Well, I'm concerned about it, but I'm not overly concerned about it because the the defense we're going to see this next week is significantly less than what we saw on Saturday. And you know, let's face it, when you go out there and you face a, a team that's got as good of a front seven as there is in college football that makes you better on some levels and you're going to learn some things and you should come out of it looking better as long as people don't get hurt and nobody got hurt. So I'm going to look at it as a, as a potential positive moving forward that they've seen the best that they have can see. And now they got something to work on. Can I come up with another 2016 comparison? Yeah. O-line to O-line. Doesn't it kind of feel like that group in the sense that they were pretty good that year, but you face an elite front and you're not at that level and you're going to struggle a little bit. Yeah, I think we'll have, I think by the time, you know, so at the end of that season, our last two games, people just loaded up the box and, and just beat that offensive line up. Well, that's I what think, they're going to do this whole season until Brandon uh, Lewis can show that he can get the ball downfield, right? Right, but I think this offensive line has more size and talent than that offensive line did, and I think they'll get better as the season goes on. Okay. All right, Jack. Asked. I, just one last thing on it. I think they don't have continuity yet is a, is a big thing, and they need to work on that. So we'll our see. Jack, our Jack 3 asked, what excited you about Brennan Lewis's play? Obviously his legs, the fact that uh, he continued to stay confident, I guess. Um Outside of that, it's kind of a stretch. I mean, the fact that he's still a freshman is going to make you grade him on a curve a little bit more. Yeah, and I think when we get when we put him out in situations to do what he's good at doing, he did it well. You know, so when we got him, you know, with you know when we got him on a bootleg, when we got him on a roll rollout and things like that, where he can get out, uh, he's he's not. I don't know if he ever will be, but he's not a drop back passer right now. He's not a guy who drops back and reads the defense, but you put him on the run and give him half the field and he can find guys. Um, and certainly when you roll him out like that, you put pressure on a defense to decide, are you going to come up? Or are you going to stay back? 
And so that's what we need to be doing with him more. Uh, I am not, um, I'm excited by his, by his, uh, prospects moving forward, you know, I mean, um, and I, I also, I also see a little bit of Cepho in him in that he's tough. You know, he took that hit and they, they, I saw it in the, on a re on the, well, it wasn't a replay, but it was a replay for me on the foot on the TV. He was hurting. He was hurting after that hit and he didn't say anything. He didn't try to come out of the game, but the camera zoomed in and he was in a lot of pain and he stayed out there and kept playing. And that's Cepho toughness. And I like it. Another good sign is that he came out and talked to the media for a little bit. You know, that's the last thing he wanted to do yesterday. And he didn't have a whole lot to say, but an important quality of QB one is accepting the responsibility for things that sometimes you don't want to do. And yeah, after a loss, the last thing you want to do is talk to the media. And it's not like we're going to be harsh on him, but that, that was cool as well. And there was also after that last, after our last offensive play, it really struck me how he walked off the field and his he had his head hanging down. And he really, he really was, he it really, he felt responsible. You could see it just from his demeanor and there's a seriousness to him. I'm going to be careful how I say this, that I think has been missing from the position for a while. Um, and it goes back to Cepho that there was the same way, you know, this is, this is my job to make this happen and I'm taking responsibility for it. And I like that. Our Jack three also asked any insight as to how the buffs took away all those weapons for the Yaggies. Well, I think we had a really, I think we had a really solid um, game plan. We had, we, we, Chris Wilson is putting guys in a position to where they can just play the game. And, and I think there is something to the fact that they've simplified this defense and guys don't have to think about what they're supposed to do. They know what they're supposed to do. And when you can just get out there and run and play, uh, that makes a big difference. Um, I think our front seven, I think our, our defensive linemen were moving people, uh, both in the run game and, you know, in the passing game to some extent, maybe not necessarily putting on the pressure that you, you want to see coming around the edges or whatever, but they were moving people. And that makes a big difference. Uh, when you have to use your offensive line to account for those guys, and that that helps you know, the rest of the defensive players. Um, it's difficult. Necess- it, it's not always easy for me without having an end zone view to see the whole field and see what everybody's doing to answer his question specifically as to how we blanketed all those guys. I think, quite frankly, that quarterback was a little bit flustered. And that helped. Certainly. Uh, I did see some plays where they had guys wide open and he didn't see them and he tried to force a pass and he missed. So, you know, part of it was them, part of it was us, but I think Wilson has put together a scheme that really lets these guys play instead of thinking too much. 505 buffs asked, are we making halftime adjustments? And then he indicated that's the end of his sarcasm (laughs) or did Texas A&M just play that much better. I don't, I don't really understand the question. They didn't come out and blow us out. It was still a close game and a fight right down to the end. I don't, I don't think that they came out and outclassed us. Uh, the, the halftime, the halftime adjustments thing is more for offense. I mean, defensively, yeah. if you put a defense out there that long in the second half, I mean, come on, what, what are we expecting here? You give right. up 10 points against the, one of the better teams. And I know their starting quarterback got knocked out, but you're going to take that a hundred times out of a hundred. Um, yeah. And they're loaded with talent. I mean, you know, we like, like the last question 
acknowledged, we st- we shut down all those various weapons. And I noticed right before the game, they were you know doing their previews of the of the teams on the TV, and and the guys were talking about all the different weapons that Texas A and M has, and how you're going to shut these all guys all down. So. Uh, yeah, they made adjustments. We made adjustments, but you know, Jimbo Fisher's not a chump. I mean, that guy's a good coach. They're they're it, they made adjustments. We made adjustments. Some of ours worked. Some of theirs worked. At the end of the day, I think you know they had they had more talent. There's no question about it. And that quarterback started finding his rhythm a little bit. Um, but we never let him get away. So I, I I reject the premise that they really dominated us in the second half i don't think that's true opposing coaches are always going to compliment the other team after a game win lose or draw right because well i guess there's not a draw in college football anymore but that makes them look better if the other team is complimented right right Right. but jimbo fisher like was genuinely complimentary and i think you could tell he was kind of surprised at, at the type of fight that cu had especially him being an offensive guy and what, what CU did defensively against them. So that, that wasn't just hollow praise that he gave CU after the game. And I think that's, I think that that A&M offense is waking up today going, man, those guys were tough and, and, and they're, and they're sore and they got knocked around and they got beat up. Um, so I, I, yeah, I, I think you can tell when somebody's really being sincere and I really, I really picked that up from him in that. Interview. Last question for you, William. Ellie Buff asked, if Rick George hired you as a consultant for the football team, what advice would you give him? Yeah, I've been thinking about that question. I guess it depends on whether you're talking long-term or short-term. I'm not sure there's a whole lot to say or do in, in the short-term. I, I don't think you know the, the advice I would give right now would not be at the Rick George level for next week and, and weeks after that. It would be at the offensive level because I got lots of thoughts about um, offensive play calling and design and and what we're doing there, because there are lots of things you can do on offense to can help we, can out. We, real quick. Can we say that the first half game plan offensively was actually pretty good. You yeah. can criticize what went on, but I really liked the mix of what they did offensively. Right. It's never about the game plan going in. It's about what happens as the game goes along. Well, and that, that's sort of been my, my thing for the last few years is that, when something works for CU, we don't stick with it. We get away from it. And I don't really, I've never really understood that, you know, and, you know, uh, USC a couple of years ago, we're, we're running it down their throat. And then we decide to throw the ball down the field over and over again. I, I just, I just don't get that. The very first play of the game was a super effective tight end play. And we never did it again. Got a first down off of it. First, first offensive play of the game. We didn't do that again. You know, I, I watch these games and repeatedly teams exploit us in the middle, you know, quick slants, crossing patterns, tight ends, what have you. We act like the middle of the field's off bounds or, or out of bounds. We're not allowed to go there. Every going to the sidelines. And, you know, those sideline throws are tough throws for quarterbacks. Even NFL quarterbacks, some of them have tr- have a hard time with that. Give the guy a chance with some quick developing plays, you know. Don't keep the tight end in for added protection send the guy out on a short route and, and drop it to him right behind where the rush is coming from. I mean, there are ways to do this. And so that my, my advice, I guess would be more towards how to run the offense. And I don't think anybody would much listen to me there. Um, but as far as what other advice, I, 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 I feel fairly good about where this program is right now and where it's headed under this head coach. 
I know people are up in arms about the recruiting, but it has not been proven to me yet that they don't recruit well. And some people will laugh at that and say, well, where are the four stars and the highly rated guys? My point is, if they know how to evaluate players, and it seems that they do, and they're bringing in guys who can play at this level and make the team better, then their recruiting is good, regardless of how it's rated. So that, to me, remains to be seen. And aside from that, everything else so far that I'm seeing looks all right to me. Awesome, William. Well, I got to run, but I appreciate you again for joining the podcast. Hopefully we can get you on next week and maybe we'll be recapping uh, a win over Minnesota. I certainly hope so. And then, you know, you got me going after Ryan Miller. So I I always worry that I sound like an idiot after a really smart guy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you both are offensive line guys, which makes for good commentary because I'll admit that uh, you guys are both smarter than me when it comes to football. So uh, I like bringing on guys that know more than me. Uh, unlike Ed McCaffrey, I'm willing to, to not be the smartest guy in the room or on this podcast. Well, I think that's always, that's one of the keys to success, quite frankly, especially in, in football. You know, the head coaches who have some humility and, and are willing to have guys smarter than them on their staffs always seem to do better to me. So I'm always happy to come after Ryan. I love listening to what he has to say. He always has a good take on things, and it's just really interesting to me, and he has some great stories. Awesome. William, have a great week. Uh, I'll catch up to you next weekend. All right. Thank you. I hope you all enjoyed both of those segments. I thought there was some good stuff we talked about. It's emotional. Colorado led the number five team in the country for most of the game. And it's tough waking up on Sunday as a CU fan and accepting that. And we tried to buck on the moral victory stuff as much as possible. But, again, no no one expected Colorado to have the defensive performance they did against A&M. And so you have to shine a light on the positives as well as the negatives. And so that's what we try to do in this podcast. They lay an egg against Minnesota. Maybe next week's podcast will have a different tone to it. Hopefully that's not the case. Brian and I will have analysis this week, a preview of the upcoming game. I'm going to interview a Minnesota beat writer. Stay tuned to buffstampede.com for all the news and updates as we get close to that home matchup against Minnesota. There's going to be some official visitors in Boulder next week. Again, buffstampede.com is your home for all that news. If you have not yet rated and reviewed this podcast, Please take a couple minutes to do that. That helps us, as I have mentioned on previous podcasts, get this in front of more CU fans. Appreciate all of you for tuning in. And we'll talk to you next week.